The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. I'm going to read Genesis 1-1 for us, pray, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? You guys cool with that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this book... The very beginning of all beginnings and the beginning of what you want to tell us about who you are, I pray that you would amaze us. You created all things, and then you created us, and you told us about it. So I pray that you would help us to experience this book afresh and know you for who you are. I pray. Amen. This is probably one of the most famous passages, the famous lines, maybe one of the most famous sentences in the entire world. Um, It is the beginning of all beginnings. In all Western literature, if you say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, most people recognize that statement. I would expect, even still today, as kind of Christianity is kind of not the main dominant voice in the culture, I imagine that most people still know something, one way or the other, about the book of Genesis. They know that, they know the phrase, like, uh, am I my brother's keeper? That comes from Genesis. They know the story of Noah's Ark. Even fitness equipment, Jacob's Ladder, is named after a story from the book of Genesis. Genesis is the very, very beginning of all things, and the, the, the term itself is even identified in the dictionary, which is saying, the beginnings of things, like there's episodes of Star Trek that are called Genesis, or well, you know, and it's all about beginnings. It's similar to when we hear phrases like "a long time ago" in the galaxy far, far away. It has the same sort of feel to it. There is an adventure about to begin, or once upon a time, and you know, Goldilocks, blah blah blah. It's a, it's a phrase that pulls us into a story. And what God is doing here at the very beginning of this book about all the beginnings is inviting us into the adventure, a land very different from what we know, of what God's done. All of what God's done in the world, everything that ever existed, everything that exists for you and me, everything that we enjoy in this world, it all had a beginning. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as an invitation into this type of story that is an adventure. So God is inviting us to come and consider everything that he has done on his terms. So here's what I'm going to, the point of this morning's sermon is to basically give an overview of what we're experiencing in the book of Genesis. This year we're going to preach through the book of Genesis. We're going to take a break in the summer. And I promise we're not going to do every chapter because that would be 50 sermons. And I might die if I preach 50 sermons on Genesis. We're going to go through the first 11 chapters in Genesis between now and the end of June. We'll take a break in the summer, and then we're going to do selected chapters through the rest of the book uh, by the end of the year. But what we're doing this morning is I want to just kind of open the gate for what it means for us to experience the book of Genesis. So here's what the main point of this sermon is going to be driving towards, and what I think that God is inviting us into. Experience the enchanting wonder of seeing our great God. That's what I think what we're trying to do here in the book of Genesis. Experience the enchanting wonder of seeing our great God. There's a lot of great, a lot of drama in this book. There's a lot going on. 
There's a lot of things we're going to need to understand and kind of get our hands around and, and kind of dial in on. But what we want to do this morning is we want to dial in on what did Genesis mean for Israel? What did Genesis, what does Genesis mean for us? And then how do we walk forward in what Genesis is all about? What is Genesis trying to do? There are a lot of ways to describe the point of Genesis. But I think that the most important framing of Genesis here at the very beginning is, in the beginning, God created. He did something that was for Israel, that's for us, and then does something to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop down into just this first kind of category of Israel's Genesis and consider what does this book, what does this book mean for Israel itself? Israel, if you are uh, not familiar with the story of the Bible, uh, Israel was this entire nation that belonged to God. They had God's name on them. They all were basically like Jacob, last name Israel. Like they were all part of this big family. And they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, which was not God's best for them. It wasn't what God wanted for them. So God sent Moses in to bust them out. In the process of doing that, they have ten plagues, and God, in those ten plagues, destroys each of their gods, the Egyptian gods. Each of the plagues is targeted against one of the Egyptian gods. God busts them out. Then, of all things, he leads them right up to the edge of the Red Sea, clears a path through the, the Red Sea, dry land. They walk straight through. Yay, we're free. They get to the other side. Hey, no food. <laughs> and God's like, okay, I'll give you food from heaven. So they get free food from heaven. They get free free water from a rock. And yet still they come to this place where they're kind of like, God, you've not done enough for us. We're grumbling and complaining. And God says, I'm going to keep doing this every day. Don't worry about it. It's like a socialist dream, right? Free food every morning, free water every day. Everybody gets it all the time for free. They walk through the desert and they get to the mountain. And they're going to get basically, here's the family rules, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up the mountain. As he's giving them the Ten Commandments, they start saying, man, that Moses guy, he's been gone for a long, long time, 40 days. I mean, we got 10-day quarantine when you get COVID, right? And if you've done one of those, you can get experience like 10 days is a long time to not be around anybody else. 40 days of just waiting around, (laughs) like that's an eternity. So they get to the end of their 40 days and they're kind of like, we haven't seen this Moses guy. And Yahweh, whoever this God is, he certainly seems very distant because he's up there with, with Moses and we've got stuff to do down here. So what they do is they all take their gold and they make a golden calf. So if I were to put my money on it, I think the book of Genesis. Why do we have the book of Genesis? Because Israel did a big no-no in Genesis 32. And in the book of Genesis is God's response to their idolatry. Let me read for us a little bit of what happens here in Exodus 32. This is what happens when they create their gods. And you're going to begin to see some of the context of what I'm talking about here. Exodus 32, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are on your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it 
with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow we shall feast to the Lord. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day with burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. You'll notice here in verse 6, it says, These are our gods of Israel who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, and they made a golden calf. Now again, this is going to, we're going to hear me say all the way through this sermon is we're going to be talking about some of the, what's called the original context, the, the world that they would have lived in at the time. And in the Egyptian world, there was this god called Apis. And Apis was a calf, a cow, who had a golden dome over his head. And he represented, um, he was the god who represented uh, he man- the manifestation of the king. He was conceived by a ray of light. Um, and uh, that's why he had the golden orb over his head, because he was connected to the, the deity of the sun. He also had the strange story of being sacrificed and being reborn continually. And as such, he represented the king. And so in Israel's mind, I think this is what's going on. You know what? We're out here in the middle of this desert. We just got kicked out of Egypt. Or maybe we got led out by the Egyptian gods to be our own people. Maybe this whole Yahweh thing was just a ruse. Maybe, maybe we really just need to, to make our gods again. And we're going to revisit those Egyptian gods. Because who is this Yahweh character anyways? Maybe he just wanted to get rid of that Pharaoh guy so that we could be his people out here in the middle of the desert. Look, we got a mountain right here, and we got gold. See, when God became very distant to them, they swung towards what they knew, and they knew the Egyptian gods. They knew that even though they were kind of scary and they were part of their oppressors, they knew what they were like. And in the ancient world, when you made a god, it was basically like having like your own Hulk on a leash. <laughs> you know, like we're going to have our own Hulk, and we're going to have him do stuff for us. But he's going to be super powerful, but we've made the idol, so he's under our control. So here they were, in the middle of the desert, basically saying, you know what, that Yahweh guy, uh, let's just make a golden calf. That feels more familiar. When God became distant, or they felt distant from who God was, they swung towards what they knew. What we're going to be seeing as we go through the book of Genesis is this entire category of how God tells a story of beginnings over and over again. Different stories, different people, and they're, ta- they're stories that, that take from the religions around them. So what we're going to see here in the next couple of weeks as we look through the book of Gen- uh, Genesis 1 through 2, is we're going to see there are striking similarities between the Egyptian creative creation narrative and the Babylonian creation narrative, but they're told by God and in God's way. Again, we're going to see in the, the, the story of Noah. There's a whole Babylon. Have you ever heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? Does that kind of ring any bells? That's an ancient story from the Babylonian world that tells the same type of Noah story, but God tells it his way. We have here in the Genesis, I think Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is going back to the very foundations of what the world is all about and saying, okay, you guys know all these religious stories from around you. I'm going to take those stories and I'm going to tell you about how they were originally intended to tell you who I am and what I'm like. Here's what I'm really like. So he takes that Noah story and 
rather than all the trickery involved with those gods, it's God's saving power and message to Noah that saves him from the waters of judgment. Or, for example, in the creation narrative, again, we're going to talk about this next week with Egypt. Egypt had this whole creation narrative where basically in one day the world was created and the sun god Ra, he gets up, he rules over the world, yay, Ra, goes down at night, he fights all the powers of darkness, never know if tomorrow's going to come. Tomorrow comes, yay, Ra, he defeated the dark powers, the creation power, the creation story happens in one day, and the purpose is for Ra to defeat and rule over all the gods. But then you see in the creation story of Genesis how, actually, God's very much in control, he's not plus or frightened by anything. He's actually not having to fight any battles, and he does it in an orderly way. You see how there's borrowings from those stories, but God tells them in a different way. It reminded me this morning of, do you guys know that song, um, Killing Me Softly? Yeah. Walks into it, that is, I don't want to sing it, because that's going to be on the record, and I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Killing me softly with his words. You know that's not. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about? So, I can only imagine that the, the Egyptian and Babylonian gods, in my mind, it just made me laugh for like 30 minutes this morning. Like, they're basically singing this song about Yahweh taking their stories. <laughs> they're like, well, bro, that was my, my story about how we made the world. And Yahweh's kind of like singing a, singing a better song. He's just like, killing them softly with his words. I, it made me laugh. I just thought it was funny that, you know, here's this idea of Yahweh taking these stories from the pagan gods and saying, here's my version of them, they're my stories now. And that's basically what we find going over and over and over again in Genesis. And you'll notice, if that's the context of Genesis, that Genesis is, due to Exodus 32, people have just taken, they've just been saved from, uh, from Egypt from 400 years of slavery. Miraculously walked through a river on dry land given free food from heaven, and yet they still are doubting God and saying, those pagan gods, they're better for us than this God who's doing whatever he's doing. If those people can have that go on, make a literal idol, and give the finger to God himself, and yet God's response is, okay, I'm going to tell you a big old story. I'm going to take those God stories that you think are really important and show them how I'm a better character, how I'm better than they are you can begin to see that the book of Genesis really is for people like you and me. If you struggle day to day with doubt and anxiety and frustrations and sins and weaknesses and you don't have your life together and you don't really know what you're doing after you graduate and you don't know what you're doing with your job and you don't know what your family's all about and you just have questions about everything and you really can't get your life together, well, that's who the book of Genesis originally came to. It was the people who had their lives totally wrecked and had no idea... They were claiming to know who God was, and yet at the same time, they were totally jacked up. But yet, the book of Genesis shows us that God chose them. That God wants people who are totally wrecked and whacked out and don't have their lives together and confused on everything. God chooses people, effectively characters from the Jersey Shore, right? <laughs> or Real Housewives. Or I would use to, used to call it, uh, you know, Jerry Springer. But Jerry Springer is kind of like out of fashion these days, right? Like, that's who these characters are through this book. They're all just a bunch of weird people. <laughs> and they're people who are probably members of King's Cross Church too, like me. 
that just don't have their lives together. And yet, if you feel like you relapse day in and day out into doubt, sin, weakness, and forget who God is, God gave you this book to re-enchant you with who he is. Over and over again, we're going to see this is the type of God that we've got. This is the type of God who loves us. So let's kind of drop over that. It's kind of like this big second bucket. Talked about Genesis for Israel. We're going to talk about our Genesis. Here's what I want to do. I just want to acknowledge right out, right out of the front that when we come to Genesis, we all immediately have those questions of, what about creation and evolution? Seven-day creation, how old is the earth? 10,000 years or is it a billion years? All these sort of questions. And I just want to kind of begin to push on that a little bit because the way we come to Genesis does affect how we read it. The, the, those sort of questions, how old is the earth? Seven, seven literal days, seven figurative days. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? Those sort of questions. Those are all how type questions. They're very modern orientation towards a book that has no intention of being a scientific textbook. We'll get into the details of this next week, but I don't think Genesis particularly cares about the mechanisms, the how. Those how type questions, the Bible generally just does not engage with them very much. Like the book of Genesis, or frankly, any other book, you have here at the beginning the the very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. My general position on all of those sort of questions about seven days, blah, 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 I'm like, Look, if you're dealing with a God who can create everything out of nothing, all bets are off in trying to understand exactly how he does anything. So again, those sort of how mechanisms questions, I don't think the Bible particularly cares about them. You'll begin to see over and over again, think about all the miracles that you've seen in the Bible. Jesus turns water into wine. Well, how do you do it? Well, he just said so. But how? I mean, if you ever looked into the brewing process of how you turn water into wine, it's a very complicated, intricate process, and Jesus just does it? Or you got a story of the sun standing still for, for longer during the day. How did God do that? The Bible doesn't particularly care. Or you see Jesus walking on water. How did he do that? Did the, did the molecules suddenly turn into solid ground under each of his feet? The Bible does not particularly care. What the Bible does care about is the why question. Why did God create the world? Why That's why we look at the the story on Jesus walking on water and we immediately understand that's Jesus standing sovereignly over the troubled waters of our own lives. But that's 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 not what's literally happening in the story. But there's a why behind why Jesus walks on troubled waters that we can immediately relate to. It's the why question behind each of these stories that invites us into this drama, this enchanting world of what God's created for us. So we have, for example, in Hebrews 11.3, By faith, you understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We look at the why question, and it is by faith that we recognize. The why question is what answers what's here and what's not. Why is this world here? Why did God make stuff? Why did God create humanity? Why did God make us male and female? Why did God make all the colors of the rainbow? Why did God make smells? Why did God make skunks? Why did God make all these things? Those are the questions that Genesis draws us into. If you want to get into the how, I can talk about some of that stuff, but that's not what the book is really about. Especially these first 11 verses. 
How did God, let's think about the story of Noah, right? God floods the world and he saves Noah through, through an ark. Well, how did he do that? Well, it tells us that the waters came down from the sky and from the earth. Okay. I need a little bit more. What exactly are the mechanisms of what happened? Was there like a, a latch? What happened? The Bible doesn't tell us. But why? So that God could save his people and renew the world to be with them in the world that he created. Again, we'll get into those details as we go along. And you're more than welcome to text me the question and answer the best I can. The point isn't, how has God violated the laws of nature? The point is, this, this book invites us into amazement that this is our God. My, I, my atheist friends sometimes will kind of make fun of uh, Christianity and say, so you're telling me that God created a hundred billion trillion stars in the universe that certainly some of them have life on, and you're talking about all these galaxies in the universe but God particularly cares about this world and this place and you at this time? And Genesis' answer is, yes. That's the crazy part of this whole thing. Is Yes, God created all of this stuff. He did all of these things. But he has a very specific and very focused, affectionate love for us. That's the amazement. It's not, oh my gosh, how do we explain how the 100 billion stars and all those things are all... I don't have a degree in general relativity. The Bible invites us to ask, why does God love me? Why is God giving us this book? One commentary says that the book of Genesis exists, quote, to describe the destiny of God's covenant people. I think that's a secondary reason. What we're invited to through all of these crazy stories of Jersey Shore people all through the book of Genesis is to see who God is. It's to see who he is in the midst of all of this jacked up nonsense, right? What he's like, whose people are, how we get to know him through these various stories. So just kind of three things to kind of keep in mind as we read through this book are people, uh, place, and presence. So who are the people that God engages with all through this story? You'll have God, for example, um, calling a moon worshiper out of the far far east to make... Uh, called Abram to rename him Abraham and make him of all people his covenant people to the world. Um, that says more about God than it does about Abram. Right? You will have Noah who later gets drunk and has some crazy stuff in his family be the one that God chose to save his people through the waters of judgment. You also have Adam and Eve who um, had maybe a minor lapse of judgment when they listened to to a snake telling them to eat fruit off of a tree that was a no-no. And the invitation is not to figure out when did they exist and how old are they, but the invitation is to say, how can I relate to this type of God who still pursues that after they really screwed up? The place, for example, we're going to see in next week and a couple weeks after, that in Genesis 1-2, through 2, in the ancient world, they would have read this and recognized This is not just God setting up a backyard garden. This is God building his temple to rule the world. What does that say about how we read Eden in Genesis 1 through 3? And then recognize all through this story, God's presence again and again shows up for people who are in desperate need of God to do something. People who maybe go through chaos and uh, family drama and work things that don't work out 
It, the story has been crazy when you kind of think through them. But God's presence is the one that always shows up to guide people back towards restoration and renewal. You'll notice, for example, naming becomes a big deal in the New Testament, in the Bible. Right? We kind of all say that. Like, naming is a, a big deal. Well, who's one of the characters in this book that gets named? God himself. Do you know who the first person that names God in the Bible is? It's Hagar. Not Abraham, not Adam, not any of these guys that we kind of know. It's Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman who had been abused and neglected and kicked out of her house. She is the first person in the entire book who gives, who utters a name for God. That's an invitation for what this book is all about. This book is an invitation to the origins and seeds of grace. This desperate thirst that we have for Forgiveness, mercy, compassion, help. Though all of those seeds begin here in this book. All the stuff that we read about later in the New Testament about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he's about. All of those things, for, they all start in the book of Genesis. For example, land, the word land in the Old Testament is the fourth most used word in the Bible. It's a big deal, for example, when I said people, place, and presence. Place, land, is a big deal in the Old Testament. And that word totally disappears when we get to the New Testament. So there's something that God is telling us about how he relates to land here in the Old Testament in Genesis that then when we are in Jesus changes to something more profoundly real. But we don't neglect the seed of what they started out as just because we want to get to the New Testament good stuff. We've got to see the roots of what God's telling us all in the Old Testament so that we understand here from Genesis the seeds of grace that find themselves flourishing in Jesus. People who screw up, for example, like Adam and Eve, and yet God pursues them and at the sacrifice of an animal, clothes them. Or, for example, a brother who murders his other brother because he doesn't like that he got shafted. Sounds a lot like how a brother who sells Jesus for 30 coins so that he might get what he wants. We get stories over and over again through this book. Let me just point out one, st- one thing about how this book is structured to kind of make this point. If we could put this timeline picture up. The first 11 chapters, however old they are, can we put that up there in the next slide? Creation through uh, chapter 11 is what we'll be focusing on. Thousand, how, irrespective of how old it is, Genesis, the first 11 chapters, takes up an equal portion to how much time God gives to talking about Abraham, which gives an equal portion of how much time God gives to talk mainly about Jacob. There's a couple of chapters about Isaac. And the rest, equal portions to Joseph. And if you look at this, you're like, so basically 11 chapters, give or take a little bit, to each kind of major block through the book of Genesis However, the first 11, thousands, millions, whatever that is, 100 years for Abraham, give or take, 105 years for Isaac and Jacob, 56 years for Joseph. This book starts huge and narrows down deep. It starts with Adam and Eve and what the world began like, and then zeroes down into Joseph's experience of suffering and hardship and all those things. The point is that God's grace is huge and vast and wide 
and has given us this entire world and then focuses in on the troubles and pains that we all experience in life. What is it this week that you need just a little bit of God's help with? God, I, I don't understand this. Why did this happen? What's going on here? Genesis invites us to say this God who creates all things owns the universe. He cares specifically about you. Let's end here then. The genesis of freedom. And just kind of give a few comments here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You'll notice that God didn't have to. Other uh, other creation stories at, uh, at the time, uh, creation was often kind of like an accident or kind of like a begrudging thing or just kind of like spontaneously combusted and happened. Here we have Genesis 1-1 saying, in the beginning, God wanted to create. He wanted to. He was free to. He doesn't have to. He's not bound to creation. God's not kind of like the force where he's like the collective, you know, mind of all the universe. God is himself separate and yet free to create. And he wants to and loves to and does it because he likes to create. Why does God create the world? Because he chooses to. He just wants to. He wants to create something that he can then engage in and reflect on and that reflects him. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this to say. Because the world is God's world, it is good. God, the creator, the Lord of the world, wills a good work, a good work. God wills to look upon God's work, to love it, to call it good and uphold it. The God who creates everything out of nothing delights in the world that he's created. And he delights, he enjoys you being in his world. And if God is separate from the world, and yet he's created it and gives it grace, that means that freedom can happen whenever we need it. God isn't bound by our story to figure out like, well, you haven't been in church enough. And until you go to church enough, then I'll give you the grace to have experience freedom in your life. If God can create the world out of nothing and freely gives his grace to people that he likes in this world, whenever and however he wants, then we don't have to earn anything from him, right? Adam and Eve and all the characters in the story, you'll recognize they didn't earn anything from God. And yet God freely gives himself to them over and over again. Let's end. I just want to read before Moses goes up on the mountain and before the people created this idol that God knew about was going to happen. I want to read for us from Exodus 19 and then we'll close. This is what God wanted Moses to preach. When Israel encamped before the mountain, Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. From all, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. See, God 
looks at these people who are about to royally mess up their lives <laughs> and just like us are in desperate need of being re-enchanted with this God that they're ashamed in their relationship with. God comes to them and gives them Genesis to reimagine the world on God's terms with God's grace for them, with God's freedom bursting out into new life in every moment, in every crevice, in every crack and decay and darkness that they can experience. God is himself coming to them and saying, I want you to be my treasured possession, to be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We will see over and over again how the seeds of Genesis are fulfilled in Jesus. And in Genesis, God tells us a story to start again for his, to, to reintroduce us to himself and say, I'm this type of God. So I pray as we work through the dynamics of Genesis that you would be re-enchanted again with who God is and how vast and amazing and deep and wide his love is for us in this world that he's created. Let's pray. God, as we begin this series in Genesis, I pray that we would be enchanted, be invited into this adventure of knowing who you are, to experience you anew, to know your goodness and power and love. And I pray that you would fill us again by your spirit to experience the wonder of seeing you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.